Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. And welcome to episode four of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm outside Seton Delaval Hall, which is where today's guest, Emma Thomas, works. Emma is the general manager of this 18th century National Trust property, former home of the theatrical Delaval family. This conversation took place back in July 2018 on the eve of Seton Delaval Hall successfully securing a £3.7 million award from the Heritage Lottery Fund, which combined with £3 million of National Trust money, is aiming to bring new life to Seton Delaval Hall for both visitors and the local community. I first met Emma back in the spring of 2002. I'd applied for an eight-week placement through my MA in Art Museum and Gallery Studies at Newcastle University to work with the learning team at Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art in Gateshead, which Emma was then leading. Emma's had a fascinating career trajectory and I wanted to include her in the project because of the way in which she selected and applied for different roles and projects at different institutions. So from her initial voluntary work at Tate St Ives through her work with the learning team at MoMA, Modern Art Oxford, then the Liverpool Biennial before going on to join Baltic. She's also had a number of really prominent roles on various organisational boards from Engage, which is the lead advocacy and training network for gallery education, NSCAD, the National Society for Education in Arts and Design, and also with Northern Architecture. A recurring feature of Emma's career is the initiation or taking on of large-scale projects. Her work at the Liverpool Biennial saw her working with a huge number of stakeholders, so not just artists and audiences, but also council members, emergency services and building owners, as the Biennial works with lots and lots of partners in complex and often really challenging ways across the city. Similarly, her work at Baltic covered the initial development of the learning programme over the busy opening period back in July 2002, but then also on the redevelopment of the Level 2 staff space into the key learning space for visitors, schools and families in 2007. 
That project was funded by the Rootstein Hopkins Foundation, and again, it reinforces an ongoing theme of this podcast series, which is the importance of developing and maintaining contacts. There are a number of other themes that emerge that I think are really useful. Those include identifying and knowing when you're ready to leave an organisation and move on to a new challenge, something Emma did when she moved across from Baltic to the National Trust back in 2017, and learning how to grab an opportunity when it presents itself. So you'll hear in the conversation how Emma has repeatedly grasped and explored different opportunities that have both helped her to define her career pathway and shape her own principles. As always, I've put links to sites, organisations and projects in the podcast description. So if there's anything that you'd like to look up that Emma and I cover in our conversation, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it for now from me. I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope you find it useful. Thank you for joining me today, Emma. If you could just introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do at the moment. Okay, hi, um, I'm Emma Thomas. I'm General Manager at Seton Delver Hall. So I work for the National Trust. My role as General Manager is, is kind of really overseeing everything in the interest of Seton Delver Hall in the broadest sense of the word. So that's looking after the daily operation. So the visitor experience, what visitors have when they get on site, but also what happens behind the scenes. So the conservation work, that happens within the property but also within the grounds there's also an element of um because of the wider estate we've got about 400 acres that we're responsible for so thinking about tenants working with the five tenant farmers as well as we've got um cottages on site as well so looking after those tenants um but a large part of it really is that um certainly with Seton Delver Hall, because it was only acquired by the National Trust in 2009, is thinking about the conservation on site, the significance of that site, um, and everything that comes with that in terms of of the archaeology, in terms of land management, in terms of thinking about nature, but also thinking about what visitors have when they come on site, thinking about National Trust membership, so how we can keep the, the business operating, because the business side is what generates the income to pay for all of the necessary works that we have to look after. Um, So part of it is also looking after the cafe, the retail space. Um, It's a hugely varied role, hence the general in front of manager, I think. (laughs) It's it's everything. Um, Obviously, it's a huge job that you've got there. Do you find that those kind of descriptions, those job titles, ring fence some of the roles and tasks that you get given or is that sometimes a hindrance for you i think it's more of a kind of um it's general manager is not a role that i'm necessarily as familiar with i think having come from the more arty cultural side of things um into the national trust 
the closest equivalent, I think, really of those roles would be a director yeah. within another organisation. But that um, terminology is quite different, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, within, and you know, is is that? Do you think that's just something that's uh, linked directly to the National Trust in terms of those job descriptions, or is it across the broader, I suppose, heritage end of of the cultural sector? Because I'm relatively new into the heritage sector, I don't know. Sure. Actually, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know beyond the National Trust really how comparable that is within within, within heritage. Yeah. But I would say you don't you don't tend to get that within other heritage. You know, kind of museumsy type yeah, sides of, of heritage um i think within the national trust part of it is also because it's such a huge organization you've got eleven thousand employees um which is massive and yeah. then it's something like eighty thousand volunteers as well so there's a, a lot of people involved there's a lot of different properties but there's also a lot of land involved so general manager is almost a catch-all for, for lots of different yeah. sites or places that you're responsible for. So you find in that you're doing things that you didn't really dream that you'd be doing a year ago, which is more than a year since you took this on, I've, isn't I've, it? Yeah, yeah. I've, been, I've been in this role for just over a just year. Over a year. Just over a year. Yeah, but, yeah. but, I, but I love <laughs> it. <laughs> so, and I think the point that I was at, I'd almost hit a glass ceiling. Right. Um, I was doing the job I wanted to do in the place I wanted to do it. So for me, you can only do that for so long before yeah. you start to feel a bit bit tired of it and yeah. you start to get a bit stale so I needed to get out yeah. um and because I'd got to that glass ceiling um it was always going to be something different but I wanted to stay in the northeast so once you make that decision that you can't relocate in the way that you might have done earlier on in your career yeah. um it narrows those options so I have to be honest and say I didn't actually know what it was I wanted to get into and yeah. I've always followed a personal interest things yeah. that have just excited me when I've seen them I've thought yes that's what I want to do that's what I want to go for um, and at the point I was having all of those thoughts at Baltic Seton Delaware Hall came up so I think for me slightly unusually within the National Trust it's the place that brought me into the National Trust yeah so we should say at that point that you live Fairly close to Seton Delaval yeah. Hall, so out at the coast, uh, Whitley Bay. Yeah. And so was that it? That that's quite a major choice, isn't it? That decision. Prior to starting at Baltic, I'd happily moved all over the country. So I mean, yeah. I I kind of started down in St Ives. Yeah. Um. So did some work down at the Tate in St Ives. I went to Modern Art Oxford. I went to Liverpool Biennial of Contemporary Art um, and then I moved up to the Baltic in Gateshead. Yeah. So I'd done my fair share of moving around and the difference was for me being at Baltic, I was there for far longer than I imagined I would have been. I think initially I was on a five-year contract, which then became permanent, but I got addicted to that changing <laughs> changing culture, changing environment. New, the new organisation thing where everything and changes yeah, the direction. It's, it's exciting and you, you can shape that. Yeah. And, and I think it's now that I realise much more what drives me. And, and one of the things that drives me is that early on having the ability to, to shape something and to kind of put something in motion, see what the future direction might be and to get people on board yeah. with that visioning. So I think it, it was kind of working out what drove me personally in terms of a career, but then also in terms of staying within the Northeast. Um, once I was at Baltic, you know, I had two children, they're both at school here, they're happy. So to relocate 
suddenly it's not just yeah. about me. Whereas I think early on in the career, it was about me. I could just move wherever I wanted yeah. to. But actually, I'd, I'd got to where I wanted to be. <laughs> so it had to be something different. And I think my priorities shifted because yeah. it was thinking very much then about about family. Um, and I love it in the northeast. So it, it, I think I had a different... Yeah, I mean, it's different life circumstances, really, yeah. that led me to wanting to do something that would... I suppose, changed my career. I was looking for something that would broaden my horizons. Yeah. Um, because I think... But broadly still uses lots of the, the skills that's yeah. really transferable. Maybe scale is slightly different. It, it uses a lot of the same skills. Yeah. I think um, the skills really that I've found most valuable have been that working with people, um, seeing a vision and, and moving towards that vision, that kind of setting up and taking people on board yeah. with that i think the other the other skills are thinking about programming thinking about visitor experience thinking about marketing all of those are skills now which i feel very confident in using in my new role yeah. um, but i have to say some of the newer elements i'm absolutely loving so the things that i've had very little involvement in even though when you put together other parts of your life and other interests it's logical it makes yeah. sense um, so I think for me, the areas like, you know, the archaeology, what we're discovering on site every time we do something new or the, the information and the stories and the history and the things that we're discovering about the place is phenomenal. Um, thinking about the wildlife that's on site, thinking about the landscape. Um, I mean, only the other week it was because we've been doing so many ecology surveys so that we can understand what, what, what we're working with. Um, and then likewise, think about the land going forwards and, and what we can do to improve land conditions. Um, but it was discovered that we've got certainly one of the largest bat roosts in the country at the hall. I mean, I, you know, I, I know very little about bats, but I'm learning very quickly. So I think, I think for me, it's those kind of things. It's, it's kind of woken me up. What has been quite interesting is spending the last year understanding a different culture, because I think... Um, it's quite easy to make assumptions. Yeah. Actually, I think moving into the National Trust and understanding much more about the the context and the reasons that certain things happen. And, and, and I think all of those relationships, working with artists, working with communities, working with visitors, all of that's still relevant, all of that still holds. Um, I think the difference is the context within which you're working. Yeah. And actually, I think one of the biggest differences I've found in terms of attitude and way of thinking is that at Baltic it was very much and actually because I've only ever worked in contemporary art Liverpool was contemporary yeah. art modern art Oxford was contemporary art so actually I've always had that in mind and and by and large I've worked in organizations that have been um, creating work or working with artists to produce work that has been in a fairly white box environment yeah. apart from Liverpool Biennial so I think suddenly to have such an amazingly rich context within which to draw on um, I have been quite careful to spend the time to get to know and understand yeah. that context yeah. um, really quite well. If you told your eight-year-old self that you'd be general manager of a property in the National Trust. So what did you want to be when you were that age and how does that relate? Do you know, I hadn't got a clue. I absolutely hadn't got a clue at eight. Um, I think I wanted to do something that would involve travel. 
fruit. Apart from that, I don't think I really. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I didn't really think about it that young, and I don't think I even really thought about this. The kind of part. I mean, I, I know I've taken sort of various directions, um, but actually, I don't think I really thought or really got started on this career path until after university. Yeah. I always just followed what I was interested in. But I would say, you know, I mean, there are things along the way that now this all this role brings it all, all together. together in, so, so, so I think there are, you know, things that when I was younger, my mum and dad would always take us to the V&A, you know, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And we'd spend, you know, kind of Sundays wandering around the V&A. And, and, and I think that stuck with me. Um, my dad was an architect and I think that has had a big influence, influence in yeah. me. Um, and I've always had a strong, in, strong interest in architecture. Um, I was on the board of Northern Architecture as well for a time. There's always been that architecture thread in the background. And when we have, you know, time off, I'll, I'll travel around. And as a kid, we used to do it as well, family holidays, you know, go, go and see buildings, um, go and see spaces. Yeah. And I think that side has always lived with me. Um, were those spaces tended to be kind of cultural spaces like museums and no, galleries or a wider range of stuff? A wider range, it, it, interesting buildings. Right. Um, and actually... That's quite an interesting mu- basis mu- for... Museums and cultural to... spaces aren't always the best they buildings, do. you know. Um, interesting domestic buildings, interesting factories. Um, I think I've always been, which isn't Seaton Devil Hall at all, but I've always been drawn towards modernist architecture, brutalist architecture, that kind of big sense of space. Um, And I think what Seaton Devil Hall, the thing that excited me initially about it is because it had the fire in 1822, what you've got within it are two stunning, big, empty spaces. And I think it was that void. It's not a traditional country yeah, house. It's yeah. a very it's different... What you can do with that. It, it's a really exciting, yeah, yeah, really exciting space. And the, the histories of, of the family that that lived there and commissioned the hall and, and the architect, Vanborough, as well. So the kind of the significance of the building. Yeah. And I think there is a really strong desire to... to want to do right by a place Um, and I mean the thing I touched on earlier about a kind of different way of thinking for me and something I've had to get used to but I'm really enjoying is the the time span within which you have to plan so at Baltic you might work on a three-year business plan or something but beyond that that was probably your limit you Mm. might have thoughts beyond that but tangible stuff was really within a three-year time frame. Um, my role now, some of it is within a one-year time frame, a three-year time frame, but we're currently looking at an estate management plan of a 50-year time frame. Okay. So, you know, when you're thinking about ecology or you're thinking about conservation, it's a much, much... Yeah, your decision's impacting over decades and yeah. and, and beyond. And, it, and it's stuff that you're not necessarily going to be doing. Yeah. I mean, I certainly won't be doing it in 50 years' time. <laughs> But, you know, so, so it's, a, it's a very different way of thinking yeah. about things. And I think my previous experience has been very much around um, people's voices and an individual's voice and within the life of, you know, within the life of a director or the life of a curator, or it's a very much a kind of personal vision that may change and evolve over time. Whereas this is something very different. You have a layer of that within it. Um, so there are things that I can do. There's visioning that you can do. You can help steer the direction. You can do all of that. 
but you're also thinking really long term um, about the environment in which the hall sits, what what your decisions may mean further down the line. So what's the minimum conservation you can do at this stage or the minimum intervention that you can do? But to the absolute end game is is way down the road. So when you were making decisions about what you studied at school and then maybe A-levels or equivalent and then going on to university, what did that process look like for (laughs) you? Um, (laughs) To be honest with you, I I was, I suppose, a fairly typical um, teenager. I, at that time, wasn't that into school, if I'm honest. I wasn't that into thinking about careers. Um, I was much more interested in what happened outside of school. So my first round of A-levels I failed beautifully Um, and then that was my first wake-up call because I think up to that point I hadn't really had a wake-up call it was just all you know it it was fine and it would fall into place but then clearly that isn't the case. Just the the nature of being at school and one year following another meant you just going through the the process of being in the education process. You're doing it just because it's expected but I hadn't I wasn't really conscious of a path I mean I, I chose to do art because I enjoyed it. I chose to do English because I enjoyed it. And I chose to do sociology because right. I enjoyed it. When you look back, it's much more logical than yeah. when you're coming through it the yeah, other way. It's in real time, yeah. So I then I had, had my wake up call um, and I went to college. And I think actually for me, college suited me as an individual because right. you could come and go a bit more. You yeah. could be a bit more who you are. So did you do A-levels at sixth form, like a sixth form to start with? I, I did A-levels at school. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then retook in college, yeah. but in a year. And had your friends gone off to university by that point? Did we kind of? Yeah, they had. But do you know, I met some great friends at college who, right. who actually, bizarrely, one of them has moved up here now as well. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you kind of you move around and yeah. you meet different people, and and that side of it was fine. But kind of, you know, went from with some of it fails ways in a year, yeah. and I think that was just about me switching on, um, putting a bit of effort in, and and realising I needed to pull my finger out and doing it because I enjoyed it. Because I think for me, the big difference at college was that I had, um, certainly with art, I had an art teacher who was a practising artist and I'd never had that before. And she was brilliant, absolutely brilliant and just totally inspired me. And so I think that very early on is where my real enjoyment for art came from. And I think that motivation was why um, certainly, you know, I, I... have been very heavily involved with NSEAD, National Society for Education and Art and Design, and was um, previously on the board of NSEAD as well, and very supportive of their work. And a lot of that emphasis is about that and the importance of the specialism and the subject and, and the importance of teaching art and creative thinking. So I'm sure a lot of that was down to that very early A-level retake. For me, it wasn't a bad thing. I'm, I'm pleased that I failed rather than just scrape through my A-levels. Right. I think it was the wake-up call I needed and it introduced me to people that I hadn't met before, which has, I think, had quite a big influence. Yeah. Um, and then I went to Liverpool to university. And again, I was following subjects I was interested in. The only two places at the time that I was aware of that you could do a combination of sociology, psychology and art was Reading University, where I was living, um, and Liverpool. So I went to Liverpool um, and ended up doing a combined honours in art and sociology. And again, those have stood me in really good stead. 
but I didn't know what I wanted to do with art and sociology. Um, and then I finished university and did a year's course with Christie's, which was, and I think part of that was, I was starting to get interested about art within a social context and yeah. bringing those subjects together and actually what, what that then means. Um, so the well, Liverpool's a great place for that. Yeah, Liverpool was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, and yeah, you were you were exposed to lots. The Tate had recently opened, yeah. um, so it was it was a fantastic environment to be within. And you know it was great for me. Suddenly you had an art department that was open, you know, kind of first thing until last thing. And actually, as a group of students, you would spend as much time yeah. in that art department as you could do. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was brilliant. And then going on to, to Christie's where it was thinking about modern art particularly and the thing about that course that really, I think, inspired me was that you were meeting practitioners, you were meeting artists, you were getting under the skin of things. So you were going out and about and meeting private collectors, you were learning about public collections and we met all sorts of individuals who who were just very open and honest about what their interests were and how they got to that point. And that was, I think it was only really in that year that I started to think about what was I going to do and what was it that was really interesting to me. Um, and I met somebody on that course called um, Lizzie Barker and Lizzie had set up the um, learning programme at the Tate in St Ives. And it was her who said, I think you'd be great at this. Why don't you... Think about yeah. it. And that, in a way, was the little push that I needed. That's really So that was, just, was that just like a random conversation that you had with her? Or did that unfold no, over, you know? It, it happened in the course of a day. Um, yeah. But she gave a presentation, talked about the setting up of Tate's and Ives in terms of the, the learning programme and working with visitors. And I think she was somebody that I kind of felt I could relate to. Um, and it just seemed for the first time like a job that I thought, actually, do you know, that sounds great. That sounds yeah. really exciting. Um, and on the back of that, I went down to the Tate in St Ives. At the time, this is going back away, you could sign on as long as you were proactively looking for work at right. the same time. So I was able to sign on. And if a job in that field had come up, then brilliant, yeah. I would have gone for it. Um, and I was able to spend a few months just knowing and understanding a bit more about yeah. about working within a gallery context and then thought, actually, this is what I want to do. So after that, thought, well, where would I like to work? I mean, it's, it's bizarre looking back because it seems so easy when you look back. But I but I did <laughs> I did think, where, where do I want to work? And I'd always really enjoyed going to Modern Art Oxford or MoMA, as it was at the time. And I phoned MoMA up. <laughs> And was invited in for an interview, went for an interview and started out in the front of house team um, at MoMA and very quickly worked my way into the education team. And there were four of us at the time working in the education team and I was at MoMA for four years. And I think that's where I really got the much more grounded experience about what it's like to work within a gallery context. And pretty much everybody who was at MoMA at the time I was at MoMA 
I'm still in touch with and they're kind of, you know, you, that's where your contacts yeah. Yeah. and your networks and your friends, um, you, you start to develop yeah. that in more of a, a kind of professional way. So how different in terms of a working culture was Tate's and I's to, to Mama at that point? Because obviously, I mean, what time of the year did you go down to St Ives? Was that oh, you know, I wasn't or... soft. It was summer. It was summer, yeah, so I, you were yeah. straight in. <laughs> and, and actually, that was amazing because it was just, you know, you, you were able to do workshops right. on the beach. You were having lunch um, on the beach and then walking into work with sand in your toes. You know, I think I had a fairly rosy view. I was incredibly lucky yeah. in terms of the people that I met, the conversations that I had and where that then led me to. But I think part of it was being open. Yeah. to that and trying things out and it could have easily not worked and then I'd have gone off in a different yeah. direction but it did um and so was my quite different it's a similar size yeah um yeah it's a similar size I think I joined modern art Oxford um this is going back away when David Elliott was director and actually David Elliott had a really strong program I mean a fantastically strong program of exhibitions um and is somebody who I who I do really admire for that. So actually, Mama's program was fairly. It was gritty. It was high profile. It was interesting. It was very forward thinking. So from that point of view, it was a phenomenal grounding um, experience to have. Really, really good. So you really focused in on the contemporary art thing by that point. That that as a as. Yeah. You know, so all, you know, there's a lot. You start to quite f- focus then, I guess, on where you want that to go. And and I think really the Christie's helped with that. Um, what well, in terms of being pushed away just, things that you were less interested yeah, in or didn't motivate yeah. you in so, quite so the same in, way. In terms of what what made you feel excited for whatever reason, for me it was that contemporary feel to yeah. it. But I think there was also something, well, kind of two things really. One was about working with people and working with artists and when I was at university I think the first exhibition I had I realized that was not what I wanted to do I wanted to be (laughs) wanted to be involved and connected in in some way with that well yeah it made me think slightly differently about about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be and then the other side to it for me was actually at, at that time I was less interested in a collection and I think for me the kind of moving on from one exhibition to another exhibition was the ability to meet artists find out often at first hand you know you get access to incredible experiences incredible insights and you're constantly having to learn so and that that feeding of that was really what I got very excited about. So, so does the timing of that kind of coincide with that real oh, shift's probably the wrong word, but it's like a, a kind of refocusing of some of the purpose of those kind of civic spaces towards, you know, not necessarily being purely about heritage or looking after things for future generations, but about the creation of new work. I think this in some ways possibly even predates that. Right. Um because I I know certainly the Baltic phase was when a lot of a lot of yeah. that was happening. Yeah. So the kind of you know case for culture and huge investment going into infrastructure, yeah. and the development around that. I think when I was at MoMA, I didn't feel that so much. Um, that may just be because I was at a different stage in my career yeah. and it yeah. was less relevant to me. I think, it's to really interesting that, that to make that decision. 
about going forward with a, without a collection. That's quite a kind of interesting thing. But I, I don't even know that it was particularly conscious. conscious yeah. I think it, I was literally just following what excited me most and yeah. what interested me most. And because my background... I mean, my degree was practical art. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't um, theoretical, and the interest and the history of and the context of came later. Yeah. But I was driven by the enjoyment of making. So I think for me that process was always there. Um, and then contemporary art, I felt more closely connected to because I could empathise a bit more. I'd been involved in it. You. I didn't want to do it in the same way, but that same interest, I think, and that same thread followed through all of this. So the learning remit that you had at MoMA, was that specific to formal education or families, or was it a bit of everything? It varied, and the initially I think it was a more kind of general role, and then it there was a changing within funding, which meant that the team had to be cut from four to two, which was really hard, actually, um, and my role ended up being schools and families. So it was that kind of quite nice combination yeah. of the two. And then I was at um, Modern Art Oxford for four years. And then there was kind of an interesting turnaround because similarly, you, you kind of get to a crossroads and you think, well, where do I go? What, what next? Um, and I had a partner, but we didn't have commitments. There wasn't a house, there wasn't kids, there wasn't any of that. So actually we could move anywhere. Yeah. So it was a case of really just seeing what was out there, but casting the net quite wide um, and then just seeing what came up, really. Yeah. And within that, I um, I then saw... I'd always been a bit of a fan because of being at university in well, thinking about Liverpool. And there was a job advertised at the Blue Coat Centre in Liverpool and I'd always liked the Blue Coat. And I went along for this job interview and it clearly wasn't the right job for me. And I knew that. The panel knew that, but there was something... Kind that... of before you'd even started it, or once you'd started Oh, no, 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 I didn't start the job. This was oh, right, in okay. the interview. Oh, right, because I, okay. I think the interview is always about... It, it's as much about if they're going to want to offer you the job yeah. as much as actually is that the job that you want to take. Yeah, yeah. You get quite a strong sense of things in the interview. And I think in a blue coat, is somewhere I have always really enjoyed. Um, but in the interview, it was clearly not the right job for me. Um and then bizarrely, a couple of days after that interview, I had a phone call from one of the panel who had been on an interview panel for another job, um, which they'd failed to recruit for. And on the interview panel, um, for when I was interviewed for the role at the Blue Coat, he knew that that was absolutely the right job for me. And I hadn't even seen the job mm. advertised. And that was for the Liverpool Biennial. Um, so then phoned up and said, can we interview you But with a mindset towards Liverpool Biennial um, and I said yes absolutely and and I had I seen the job advertised I would have certainly gone for it but I didn't even see it advertised that's, nuts, that's like a, a phone call that changes uh, yeah. where you yeah. live and, in and your I, life <laughs> and I remember I was making um, vegetable soup in the kitchen at the time yeah. <laughs> so the phone call came in I, I kind of left the soup came in took the call and then just thought actually do you know that is amazing that's brilliant yeah. Um, and then we met up halfway between Oxford and Liverpool um, and had a conversation about the job, the role, my experiences. And then I went for it. I thought, yeah, great, that'd be fantastic. And that was my first real experience of setting something up yeah. or being part of a team that set something up. 
and that was for the, the inaugural Liverpool Biennial. So that was the first Liverpool Biennial. And I started six months before the Biennial opened to the public. So it was an absolute, it was brilliant. It was fantastic, but it was huge hours. I mean, God, you, you the fact of having a contract of 37 hours would never even, that was, <laughs> that was a way away. I had pager, I had a mobile phone. You just constantly yeah. going, but it was such a buzz. It was a fantastic so what, what buzz. what year was that? What was the first one was um, 1999. It's one thing to, to kind of go in when it's been run once or twice and there's something of an expectation or template there to go in with nothing there. Right? It's so, brilliant. Yeah, it's so brilliant. Yeah, that's a unique thing. So did you feel, you know, confident within that or were there moments of panic or... You just oh, okay, we, of... All, we all have moments of panic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think the the biggest moment of panic was actually we we were looking at repurposing or, re, or using a building exchange flags in the center of town and it was a building which stood empty um we wanted to use it as a kind of um, an exhibition space but we had to make it safe for visitors we had to be able to install the work so it looked good all of those different things and I remember it literally got the pass from the fire officers the day of the press launch. So it, there were moments that you just think, whoa, God, this yeah. has got to absolutely go the yeah, right way. Um, so the point I joined six months before the opening, there was no funding in place for the, the engagement programme visitors, the learning programme. There was no strategy in place. And actually that first Liverpool Biennial didn't have public funding. So it was... Um, privately funded um, through James Moores, but also we went to various trusts and foundations. Esme Fairburn came on board. So there was a huge amount of very quick work in terms of what the strategy is going to be, keeping it simple enough so that we actually could achieve it yeah. and bring it together. Um, and the curator came over from Australia. Um, it was full on, really, really full on. Um, brilliant and I think that was my first experience of being part of that team to set something up and what really gave me the appetite yeah. for that that's a massive yeah thing, it was massive yeah. Look, looking back on it it's more massive so how many how many cycles did you do I did one right. yeah I did one because I knew Baltic was opening right and and I I had a poster of Taratantara behind my desk <laughs> at Liverpool Biennial. So that's the Anish Kapoor sculpture that was in Baltic that pre, was, yeah. in, in, during the construction phase, after the yes. inside had been scooped out. And yeah, so it was one of the, yeah. I think it was the, the first artwork within Baltic. Yeah. Um, it's the first one that I saw as yeah. well, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think for me, because it was that time when there was investment going into, into capital yeah. and there were these really big ambitious projects that were emerging and I was aware of Baltic, mainly from people who I knew who were living up here, who were talking about it. So it was kind of on my radar, yeah. but I was busy with the biennial as well. And I think the thing that I found personally difficult with a festival environment was that you, it's exciting, your adrenaline's going, you, you're kind of putting things in place, you're getting people on board, you build up. And then once it ends, people go, they yeah, disappear. Yeah. And, and you actually just suddenly, you're kind of, at one stage I was the only employee, you know, you, you kind of, you, you come down from that. Yeah, yeah. And it's that kind of very strange festival cycle. I think the biennial now is on a much more even keel. It's got, yeah, you know, it's established. It's got public funding. It's much more consistent. Um, whereas the very first one was build up, 
and then yeah. and then you you're quiet. Yeah. So did you see the job advertised for Baltic? Is that yes? So I think Baltic was the first job that I actually went for based on an advert in the paper. Right. Prior so to, like a national. Prior to that point, I mean, well, you, you know, it had been um, either me phoning up or someone yeah. phoning me, or but this was the first time I saw the advert. And I remember the advert because the advert, I've, I've got a photograph on the wall and that photograph was part of the job advert. Right. Um, and when I left Baltic, I went back to the photographer, to Etienne Clement, and asked for a copy of that right, okay. one, which just kind of bookended my time so what was with the Baltic. That one there? Oh, the black and white. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the ones that were on the newsletters. Yes, they, they were lots, kind the pre-opening yeah, newsletters. Yeah. So, yeah, very striking black and white image, and they look very different to anything else that was around at the time. Yeah. So even even the job advert stuck out. Yeah. You know, Baltic had its own font. font. It was... <laughs> It, it was branding extraordinaire. Oh, it was brilliant, yeah. and and it was doing something very different. Um, but I I kind of simultaneously because you you kind of I knew that that festival way of working the kind of up down up down brilliant to be involved in the first one. But actually, for me, I wouldn't want to keep so doing that. What you wanted to do was jump into something where it went straight up and then stayed there a few <laughs> or, <laughs> enormous or just, opening. Or, or, did this great big opening, stayed there, and then did another one. Yeah, or, and then, oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the kind of the downhill bit, I didn't enjoy so much. Yeah. Um, and then I think I, I applied for two jobs at the same time. One was with the Arnolfini in Bristol, right. and one was with the Baltic in Gateshead, and got interviews for both on consecutive days. Right. And I remember at the time, the interview for the Arnolfini was an all-female panel. Is that the first interview you had? Yeah, so, so Arnolfini, yeah, the interview was first, and that was an all-female panel, and then Baltic was an all-male panel. Um, and I was then offered both jobs, <laughs> and that was that was tough because you're deciding whether you're going to live in Bristol or whether you're going to live in Gateshead. Um, Arnolfini, again, is somewhere that I have always admired. It's a great place. Bristol's fantastic. Yeah. I love Cornwall. Yeah, there's a kind of a there's a side there's a side to that, and then there's an organisation that isn't built yet, yeah. is in a town that you don't know, um, and that I think was always going to be the one that I was yeah, going to yeah. go for because it was exciting. I mean, it was brilliant. To, so was Arnolfini quite established at that point? I can't remember yeah. where that was in its cycle. Yeah, Ar- so Arnolfini was, was quite established at that was point. It before. Before it was the, when the, Caroline Collier was yeah, director. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it was established and it had a great programme and, you know, it would have been a wonderful place yeah. to be as well. Um, but I think there was something about the not knowing for Baltic yeah. and the excitement of being involved in that setup and what that could be. And, and there was something really exciting about the graphics. I mean, Sooner Nordgren, director at the time... Um, I really warmed to. I thought Sonny was fantastic and his vision was amazing. And I think that sold me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming that Sooner was on the interview panel in the, the yeah. early days. Yeah, Sooner was on the interview panel. Yeah. Um, Richard Wentworth was on the interview panel as well. Yeah. Um, so at that point, you must, you know, that, that's before the building's opened. So yeah. the, the organisation's based in St Mary's Church on the Gateshead side of the river at that point. And how many people work for Baltic at that point? I think I was about the sixth employee, right. so it was very early doors. Yeah. And the time I joined, 
um, nobody was going in the building because it was a great big building site. There's yeah. scaffolds all the way around it. So that our our base was in St Mary's Church alongside Sage Gateshead. Yeah. So I'm upstairs because it's a listed building and the offices are on stilts. So on one side was a few Sage employees yeah. and on the other side was a few Baltic employees yeah. um, in this one place. And I initially was brought on board as a Gateshead Council employee because Baltic became a trust in its own right on opening. Prior to that point, we were all Gateshead Council employees. Yeah. So you, you're back in a position where you're setting up something massive. Yeah. And um, able to create, I, I, I guess, in effect, your own team there. So you, I, how much steer did you have in terms of the direction that the programme should have? or the type of learning activities that, that were expected of you? Did you have pretty free reign there, or was that something that's seen a... It felt pretty open, actually. The, there were a few things already decided, which I think largely were budgetary constraints. Right. Um, you know, there were to be four members of the team. Yeah. What those roles were was to be decided. decided. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there were four, four roles... There were certain things in motion, so obviously the idea of the art factory. So that was such a strong vision that you couldn't do a learning programme without thinking about that involvement in process and getting people behind the scenes. The whole architecture, I mean, it's been changed quite considerably now, really, but the early doors was very much about sight lines through the building. It was about how you expose the working practice of artists, um, to to try and make the place live, so it's much more kind of alive. It was very much about supporting artists, practitioners, but it was also you know very much about how we could embed locally within Gateshead, and I think we were all very very conscious of how much Gateshead Council particularly had taken a risk, yeah. um, not just on Baltic but on Baltic Millennium Bridge on Sage. And really driving forward that cultural agenda. Well, part, that's part of a very strong uh, narratives. Maybe the wrong phrase for it, but uh, they'd already committed and shown they were able to deliver on lots of projects. Though, hadn't they, from the mid nineties through yes. there? With yes, um, there was a kind of public art yeah, project. That, yeah, yeah, and then that the angel going. obviously, and then the, yeah. the bridge and. Yeah, okay. and that helped pave the way for. So, were they steering? Because I know that the. That Gateshead Council were very supportive. So were they supportive in terms of the ideas? Were they, were they kind of feeding ideas in at that point? Well, the or? way the way that it worked on the ground was that I would have conversations within the Baltic team, um, come up with ideas, and then there was a subgroup within the board at the time, and that subgroup would meet with me on a regular basis and we would talk all these things through. Right. And within that board subgroup, there was representation from the council. And I remember particularly Sid Henderson was involved. Yeah. And Sid was a big, big supporter. Fantastic. And and also been very influential involved with bringing the Angel of the North to Gateshead. And so a, a kind of consistent figure, I think, behind yeah. the scenes and all of that. But what it did give me the opportunity to do was... Um, to set things up early doors yeah. and try and involve people in the shape going forward. So one of the fir- one of the very early things um, I did was pull together a kind of group of teachers to help advise that. Um, 
you know, the worst thing in the world would be to just set up a programme and assume you've got it all right. You know, the, it was very much about trying to listen to what's going to work in Gateshead. And at the time, there was a very strong feeling, I remember within the team, that the, the fact that Baltic was so far from London, we were taking our comparisons from elsewhere in Europe. Um, and that was really exciting to think about that, almost that Kunsthalle type yeah. approach to, to ways of working. And it, it meant that we weren't just trying to replicate what yeah. had happened elsewhere. But I mean, the, the teachers' network was fantastic because it was an opportunity really to chat to people about what they wanted to see, um, to plan a programme together as well, trial a few things before we got into the building. And, and I think actually there has been a teachers network at Baltic since those early days. And that's now what, 17, 18 years later. So I think that kind of ethos actually is still carried through to try and bed it in at a local level. But the strategy was always to bed it in at a local level and concentrate on an international profile because at the time there was no profile for Baltic at all. So to concentrate on the very local and the international, the view being that the national would then come along. Obviously the building changed quite a lot. The use of the building changed quite a lot, but the the amount of space that was used for for learning or that was given over to learning changed quite dramatically throughout. I think the space was probably the area less so than the vision. It was the space that... I think we were most constrained by. Um, I joined the team, whilst I did join before Baltic opened, actually we probably could have done with longer. And whilst it was problematic that the opening was put back, it did give a bit longer. um, So just out of of interest, how... Before the date changed, how how far in advance were you appointed? It was back to the Liverpool biennial days, the time frame, so it was about six, <laughs> six months, months. Six months. And then it was put back by, was it a year in It was end? put back by about a year, so it gave so me a nicer lead-in time to set up a team, get a strategy in place. Nothing's ever going to completely prepare you for moving into a new yeah. building in that sense. But I think having that extra year to think and plan actually was really, really valuable. But in terms of the spaces, when we first moved into the building, the original intention or the ethos behind it was that, you know, education or learning could happen anywhere. Yeah. And whilst that's great, um, as an ethos, actually, it, it then becomes a constant struggle to try and make that happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, where where do you take groups? How do you, you know... It, it, yeah, having a base, a home. Yeah, we, we, there. Um, yeah. we had two rooms in the receiving house, which is the kind of tower where the grain would have originally come into the old building, into the mill. Um, we had two rooms, one above the other. Um, neither was really big enough for a class size. And it made the demands on the staff team quite high because you're having to double up or move between spaces and and also because everything in those early days that happened was hidden from view and something that we did learn very early on which is obvious really is is that if people don't see something happening they assume it isn't happening um and so when we were about gosh when was the rootstein stuff that would have been Oh, it's 2009, is it as late as that? Yeah, so it was probably about six, seven years into Baltic's life, wasn't it? Um, at about that time, we had an opportunity, and this is where the kind of the friendships that you make and the networks and 
I suppose the importance of those professional relationships that you have um, pay dividends in some sense. Um, Ian Cole, who I had worked with, he was my line manager at Modern Art Oxford, um, was a board member for Rootsdean Hopkins Foundation. And Rootsdean Hopkins Foundation were in an unusual situation in that they were winding up their funds and they had sold a property in London and have more money to wind up than they had thought. So they made a decision that the trustees could go out and invite people to apply for those funds. So Ian had a conversation and said, if you were given funding, what are your biggest challenges? You know, what what difference could we make as a legacy for Rootsdean Hopkins? So the visibility of, of the Rootsdean Hopkins Foundation going forwards, yeah. which was an incredible opportunity, a fantastic yeah. opportunity. And the big challenge that we had at that time was visibility. It was access to space. It was space itself. Um, and it was how we position learning physically within the building but also within the organization so again in some ways it's a setup role it's a repositioning it's a rethinking of a thing so on on the back of that we took over what was a previously staff area so there was a staff kitchen which it didn't work because People could watch you eat your lunch. It was yeah. a it was really an awkward space. Awkward space. It was, it was almost too big. It was too big as a yeah, staff area. For a staff yeah, staff area, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, so we, and it, but it was right in the heart of the building. It was on, on floor two. And that's what then later became key. Yeah. And it meant that people could get to the library and archive without having to pre-book an appointment we had a, a bespoke, decent-sized studio space. We could relocate an office down there. There's a kind of area there for young people. So it really visually put learning right at the heart of that yeah. visitor experience and also, I think, changed some of the um, demographic of who was visiting Baltic at the time. Um, it certainly, I mean, this is anecdotal because we didn't have quite the same level of visitor research as there is now, or it wasn't done to quite the same degree, but far more families. So I think it, it changed that demographic that yeah. came into the organisation. And there was also then a move for the training and development programme for the front of house team. Yeah. And how, I suppose, on the back of that research, what people's motives were for coming into Baltic. And if it wasn't number one, it was usually in the top three that somewhere along the line there was a kind of a wanting to find out more, wanting to learn, wanting to engage or connect with the themes of the work. So it was clearly wanting to bring people closer to. So Baltic took the move at that time, or just shortly after Key... Well, yeah, no, Baltic took the move at that time to, to think about how visitors and the front of house team connected so a move away from seeing people purely as security guards um, and standing in a space. And I think Baltic had always actually done it slightly differently. Yeah. It wasn't a total... It, it felt like a kind of um, cultural evolution rather than a revolution. Yeah. It yeah. certainly felt like the natural path for Baltic to tread. Um, and we put in place a training programme for the front of house team which was very much about how you engage with visitors, how staff can be better informed about the work that's going on. And that, I think, helped hugely in terms of the relationship that we were having with audiences and the, the encouragement of repeat visits, but also the interest for staff um, in, in those roles. 
further down the line, following on from that, when Godfrey Warsdale um, became director of Baltic, I think, again, I was at a point where I was feeling a bit fidgety and thinking maybe I'd had my time. Um, and I remember Godfrey and I having a conversation about the, the what-ifs. And as a result of that, we brought the what was then two separate teams together into one. So we followed through on that earlier Rootstein director of tra- direction of travel and we brought together um, the visitor service team and the learning team into one. So it, it structurally, that changed as well. Yeah. So And I remember the jump sort of overnight, the team went from six to 60 people. Yeah. Um, and that was quite a big, that was a, a big challenge again for me that I needed to kind of keep me keep me going keep me working and and Baltic is still taking that model and other organizations nationally since have have taken on a similar model um adapted it for their sites or their context but taken on that model um so I think the point at which I got itchy feet again at Baltic was when that transition was bedded in um it it was the norm it was what was happening so that that's the point at which you were looking around and then spotted the seat in delville hall yeah so, so i think you know godfrey leaving i you know you, you also you find a director that you you work with really yeah. well and and i think you know i was lucky early on because sooner i think was fantastic yeah. and then godfrey coming back in later godfrey similarly was you know he, he was solid and, and i think he he gave me a lot of freedom. And yeah. I think you see that sometimes when you leave somewhere. Um, but he, he, or when they leave. Or when they leave, yeah. And, and actually, he, he did give me a lot of trust and a lot of freedom to do things. And there was a lot of belief in in me. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think for that, that was hugely helpful for me. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I, I kind of hit that point where well, what do I do next because actually you can't keep doing those things in the same organization yeah. and you you need a different context to work in and and actually I think by that point that learning that engagement and that visitor experience is a big part of me but I think I wanted some I wanted a greater breadth certainly during the time at Baltic since I've known you you've had lots of quite major roles on different panels and boards in different capacities either advisory or I think trustees in some case haven't yeah. you been to does that keep you yeah, your eye that's... on the ball everywhere else yeah I, I mean I, the I think legitimate opportunity to keep seeing what's happening yeah and I think that has been absolutely critical for me and still is in my new role within the trust the first time I sat down with my line manager and we went through my objectives we put in one of those objectives was to maintain external networks yeah. um, because I know that's a big driver for me is seeing how different people do things, getting a, a sense of what's happening on a national level as well. Um, and you, you kind of feed off that. It, it's exciting. It takes you out of where you're currently at in a really, really good, yeah. good way. When I fir- The first board that I went on was quite deliberately although it's now related, was quite deliberately a bit different. So I, the first board I joined was Northern Architecture. And that, whilst it was following an interest of mine, there was a slight difference to my, my daily role. Yeah. And I think it was helpful in terms of then building up that confidence um, in terms of being on other boards and networks. And then I was on the board of the National Society for Education, Art and Design, 
One that I've kept on within the trust role is um, Vice Chair of Engage, National Association for Gallery Education. And that's partly also for me thinking about, um, it, I mean, it's a great organisation, you want to be part of it, you want to support it. And the relationships and the network and the what's happening on a national scale is really, really valuable. Um, but for me, it's also about now within the trust, my contract is for three years it's connected to a development stage um there's a possibility that that will be extended or that yeah. would you know but actually there's no guarantees of that and part of the reason for coming into Seton Delaware Hall and coming into the trust was to broaden my horizons so what I don't want to then do is having made that shift yeah. narrow them down or again in a different in direction different areas, yeah. so, so actually by maintaining those external contacts knowing that I'm on a limited contract yeah. I actually at the end of or you know probably the end of year two when you start to look again um it means that actually you've got more direction to look in in terms of what the next steps might be and quite a few of those things that you talked about at different stages there have been people you know like Suna or Sid from from Gateshead Council say would you consider those to be informal kind of mentoring roles in any way or how did that or has mentoring been a big a kind of important part of your own development have you had people that you've gone back to throughout your uh your career yeah there are certainly people who mentors an interesting way there are certainly people who strongly influenced yeah. and there are people who whose opinions i've really valued um and I could, you know, you, you can think back and you can pick you know, those, yeah. those really special relationships yeah. that you've had and those people that you trust and you've been through stuff together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there are those people that I would always choose to go to and know that I could go to in confidence and, yeah, and, actually, board, yeah. and, and in whatever, in different roles as well. So I could go back to those people now and say, whoa, this is what I'm facing. Ah, yeah. um, And you know you can have that. So I suppose in an informal way, Yes, there's a kind of mentory type relationship. Nothing formal, there. as in no. I mean, you know, not like Claw Foundation type mentoring or kind of guidance no. pro programs in that. Kind uh, of the thing. the only well, actually, in the National Trust, since I joined the Trust, I've had more training than I've had probably in the last twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> I had a huge amount of training, which has been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, but the training prior to that was fairly minimal yeah. on a the best training that I did have when I was at Baltic was leadership training and that was a course through the Institute of Leadership and Management and again it was very much about that individualized learning from other people learning from experience and there were moments within that that made me think okay that's really interesting that connects to what I'm thinking or what I'm doing and I think we had a series of speakers under kind of Chatham House rules, so nothing's attributed to, to names or, yeah. you know, um, when people were talking about their personal journeys to leadership. And I think within that, there were a few things beyond the usual career development routes that I thought, yeah, on a personal level, that has been an influence. So, I mean, particularly things like things that have happened that have on a very fundamental personal level motivated you so yeah. for for me I think one of the big things was my dad broke his neck um and he I mean that was it was before I was born 
and I think he's always been a big inspiration for me that kind of person who can drive forward and overcome obstacles and and be the one to believe when others maybe don't believe and I think the the point he broke his neck um you know he's paralyzed from the neck down and he managed to continue with his training as an architect um he learned to use so he was, he was paralyzed on his right side and then he had to learn to write and draw and everything else with his left hand managed to do that you know built up one of the largest architecture practices you know huge huge inspiration for me to grow a grow up alongside that so you kind of understand on a deeply human level the challenges that somebody faces day to day but how they've managed to somehow have you know a, a kind of a belief and a career and a way of doing things regardless or in spite of. And, and I think actually for him, in some ways, the fact of breaking his neck made him rethink, yeah, reassess, yeah. reprioritise. So I think there are those things in the background that almost help, certainly have helped me to think about what are my real priorities yeah. in this. And actually, yes, work is important to me. It's not the be all and end all, um, you know, but yes, it is important to me. But I think certainly that strong sense of belief is something that if I lose that sense of belief in an organisation, that's the point that I move yeah, on. So, um, yeah. it, you need that to drive it forward. That a lot of people kind of battle against that, don't they? If they don't want to physically move geographically, they kind of battle against that and try and fix that. Maybe it's unfixable by that point when you feel like that, but yeah. sometimes it's quite difficult. I think. Yeah, I think it, it is difficult because you know you're gonna ha- you've got into a comfort zone yeah. by that point. Yeah. So you you have to push yourself out of it, and and I know that the anxiety for me really leaving Baltic and joining the National Trust, um, it it was there. I knew deep down I was absolutely making the right decision, um, and I've got no regrets about having made that decision at all. Um, but you, you, you know, I had to take a, a salary reduction in order to take on this new role, yeah. which is your choice. You yeah. choose to do that. And, and again, it's, it's knowing for me what, what was motivating me to make that change. And fortunately, we've been able to make changes at home that actually now, yeah. so what? Yeah. It doesn't matter. I can, I can live. I can do what I want to do. I'm doing a great job. Um, so I, th- I think it, there is something quite interesting about how how you feel when you jump off, you make that yeah. jumping off point. And I think certainly for me, Baltic felt and still does to a degree very much part of me. You've invested so much of yourself personally into an organisation, and still then you feel leave like that, it. However many years, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it just, more than ten years. And, and actually, I, I have found it very difficult to go back yeah. since I left. Um, starting to find it easier because you are so so connected with yeah. with the place and the history and the people and everything else um and actually yeah i mean I, i'm completely vested in it yeah. um so to make that shift i mean it did feel like jumping off a cliff thinking god if anybody at that point looked down and said what are you doing you're throwing away um or or stopping what was then great terms and conditions a comfortable job a decent salary yeah. a pension and all of that and then essentially going into another organization and starting whilst it's a senior role, you're starting at the bottom of the tree yeah. of that senior yeah, role. Yeah. Um, but you you do make that shift. Yeah. You, you you adjust and 
I feel actually as though it's woken me up again. I feel much more interest in what's going on. I feel that drive's come back. That sense of excitement has come back. Um, yeah, but it but it it did take something to push me into doing yeah. that. So, big final question: If you could condense down all of that experience into a couple of points to advise either your younger self or somebody that's starting in the in the sector at this point. What would that advice be? Hmm. I think one, it, it depends on your personality, doesn't it? But if yeah. I was talking to my younger self, I think there is something about belief, integrity, um, taking a chance. Um, because if you lose those things, you, you, if, you may as well be doing anything, really. Yeah. Um, so I think there is something about all of all of that um roles are changing things are changing i think where i in some senses have made a bit of a career change um by going into the trust and that's something i don't think i ever thought i would do but i do now almost like straddle that heritage cultural artistic and you can see how these things fit together a bit more um so i feel stronger for having moved between it's not such a scary place and the the big advantage of changing roles within a region is all those people that you've worked with over the years are still there you know you don't lose any of that um so actually it hasn't whilst it was on one level a big shift you know, you've still got your family, you've still got your home, you've still got all those people together. It, yeah. It's just a slightly different... The professional networks that you... Yeah, all formed. of that. You, you, and and whatever stage, people resurface. And I think actually that's something worth bearing in mind. Don't burn any bridges. <laughs> um, people, people do resurface. So that yeah. kind of professionalism that carries through that and the importance of those people. Um, and I think pe- people is the biggie yeah. in it all, really and the relationship side of it. That's great. Thank you very much for your time, Emma. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project, or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 